Good morning, good Shabbos. It's good to be joining all of you. I suppose I know the folks in this room, but for everyone listening out in podcast world, I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, and I'm filling in today for Rabbi Bernstein's uh, usual Friday morning Torah study. So this week we are in Parshat Matot Masse. Um, it's actually a double parsha, and it's the end of the book of Numbers. Um, Matot is chapter 30, verse 2. Um, Masse is 33, and it goes all the way through 36. So we'll start in chapter 30. Um, 30 of Numbers? Yes, 30 of Numbers. Um, I was looking this up. It was of interest to me while I was prepping this. Why are there double partiot? I was kind of curious about why certain partiot get clumped together in this way, why others don't, and what determines that. Um, so I actually went and looked the whole thing up and all about the calendar and the system. And the way it works is that there are 54 partiot in the Torah. Um, meanwhile, the Jewish calendar year has 354 days divided by seven. It's 50 weeks. So we have either 50 or 51 Shabbatot. So we've got some extra partiot to fill in. And then in addition, we have special holidays like Sukkot and Passover that have a special dedicated holiday reading. So we wouldn't even read what's sequentially there. So we wind up having to fit in about 54 partiot across 48 um, Shabbats. And so there are seven different points at which they combine Parshiot, in which we get double ones. Um, this is one of these points where Matot and Masse have been uh, pushed together. Isn't there also a difference the years when there's leap months? That's right. I, I was wondering if this, somebody was going to mention that too. I, but yeah, absolutely. So we are also, in addition, in a leap year in the Hebrew calendar. Is anyone familiar with how that works in the Hebrew calendar? It's a very strange thing. Nineteen-year cycle. That's right. Sevens also. That's right. So every it's seven years out of every um, in every nineteen year cycle are a leap year. We happen to be in one such leap year right now. Rather than um, giving us, well, hang on. Let me take a step back and say, why would we have a leap year? Well, the corrective there is to keep the calendar lined up with the seasons, with the agricultural, with the agrarian. Um, It means that. If you're living in Israel, you can almost uh, set your watch by the Jewish holidays in that sense. Um, If you're ever there for the year and you watch it transform from the dry season to the rainy season, uh, the rains will start about within a week of um, Sukkot. It's unbelievable how perfectly mapped those holidays are onto the agrarian cycle. And so in order to keep it lined up like that, they have to have this corrective. So it's a cycle of 19 years. Every There are seven times in every 19-year cycle that there's a leap year, um, and the leap year does something rather peculiar. Rather than what it does in the Gregorian calendar, the one that we have where we get another day in February and just sort of continue on, there is an entire leap month in Judaism. This is Adar Bet, the month of Adar, the month of Purim, um, that month gets doubled, essentially. And so we have that in here. That gives us another three or four Shabbatot, and so that also changes how it is in which Parshiot are doubled. But this year, even with a leap year, we have this doubled Parsha. And all this comes from the fact that the lunar month mm-hmm. is 28 or 20, 29 days yes. and is not evenly divisible into the 365 days in the solar year. Correct. And that's why the Jewish holidays move. Correct. That's why they float around the Gregorian. You know, is Hanukkah early or late this year? 
And that all has to do with... Well, it's right on the road. Well, Easter moves, too, because Easter is close to Passover. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting, those of you who know something about the Muslim calendar, they don't have any leap months. And so the month of Ramadan... Floats all which, yeah, the way around the, the calendar. The month of fasting, right. The Gregorian it's, calendar. It's, it's not so much a problem uh, in uh, places like Saudi Arabia, where the, the days and the nights are pretty close throughout mm-hmm. the year, but in places where that are farther from the equator, then depending on where uh, Ramadan is, the fast during the day could either be relatively short or exceedingly long. Absolutely. So this is the other challenge with yeah, these lunar calendars. To sundown. Right. So do Easter and Passover always fall within the same week or similar? Close. They're, they're often close. I mean, they're very often close. Yeah, they're close. Yeah, but because it is because it is based because Easter is Easter is based on uh, is not a particular day like Christmas is. Christmas is always on December twenty right. fifth, oh, but Easter okay. is there's no set day for Easter. It's a certain number of Sundays after. Either after the equinox, or I'm not exactly sure anymore how they. How I always going. thought it was the second Sunday of whatever month it is. I didn't no, realize it was set on. No, it can be. It can vary four to five weeks. So here we have an example of even a Christian uh, right. holiday that floats in the same way that many of our and that, and that Jewish makes ones sense do. Because it mm-hmm. makes sense because Easter Easter is the, sort of the Sunday after the last Seder. Right. So the fact that they track in that way makes some logical sense as well. Uh, so just a little bit of diversion into calendars and timekeeping and some of this strangeness as well. Yes. And another piece of trivia, today is Rosh Chodesh. <laughs> today is also Rosh, Rosh Chodesh, Chodesh. the month of Av. Rosh Chodesh Av. Happy New Month um, as well. Thank you, Bert. So, as I mentioned, we are in Parshot Matot Masse. It's a double Parsha. It's also the end of the Book of Numbers. Um, I'm going to float something out there. We'll see if it bears out by the end of this. But when I was looking through this, I was actually having a challenging time figuring out what I was going to talk about. There are a few different thematic threads upon which I could have pulled to look at this Parsha. But as I was poring over, looking at other people's drashot and looking at other commentaries about this last night, something occurred to me, which is that in some ways, this double Parsha is almost a microcosm thematically of the entire Torah. We in some ways have pieces and elements and contrasts within it that I think actually span all of what we see within Torah. I'm going to float that out there. We'll see the extent to which it is borne out. We'll see who agrees and who thinks that, okay, this is its own particular piece. But I think in many ways, Matot Masse actually encompasses a lot thematically of what we see in Torah. And I'll even go so far as to say Hebrew Bible, um, Tanakh as well. A lot of what we see, I think, we see sort of reflected in this double Parsha. And so I think it's actually a beautiful and fitting way to end the book of Numbers. So we will get there, though. But since uh, it's six whole chapters, this double Parsha, and there's no real meaningful way to cover that entire ground, I'm just going to give a very quick synopsis before we jump in for a closer reading. Um, Matot has laws of oaths. It has a war with the Midianites. It has this back and forth with the tribes of God and Reuven, Reuven about territory. 
Um, and then Masse continues with Reuben and God helping other tribes, even if they uh, don't. They, those two tribes don't dwell in the land of Israel. God speaks at great length about borders, boundaries, and where each tribe will be. There's a piece about murder laws and rules in and around um, accidental death or bloodshed. And then the whole thing ends with this postscript to the story of the daughters of Tzlofchad, um, this piece about women's inheritance and owning property. We'll get to that um, for all of it. So there are actually a few sections I'd love to cover more closely, um, and I'm going to start with one of the darker ones, actually, that we're going to see today. Does somebody want to read? We're going to start chapter 31, verse 1. Does somebody want to read... The first eight verses of chapter 31. I'm going to the, Lord spoke, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Avenge the Israelite people on the Midianites, and then you shall be gathered to your camp. Moses spoke to the people saying, Let men be picked out from among you for a campaign, and let them fall upon Midian to wreak the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall dispatch on the campaign a thousand from every one of the tribes of Israel. So a thousand from each tribe went from went were furnished from the divisions of Israel. Twelve thousand picked for the campaign. Moses dispatched them on the campaign, a thousand from each tribe, with Phineas son of Eleazar, serving as the priest on the campaign, equipped with the sacred utensils and the trumpets for sounding the blasts. They took the field against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses and slew every male. One more, one more verse. Along with their other victims, they slew the kings of Midian, Evi, Rakim, Zur, Hur, and Riva, the five kings of Midian. They also put Balaam, son of Beor, to the sword. Okay, we'll take start with just that much. Questions, responses to what's happening here? A lot of blood, that's right. Um, another one of these violent campaigns that we have here. Um, but behind this is the idea that God is involved in history. Yes. The God that the, probably taking a story of a battle and having God be the main mover, not the Israelites. Right. God um, said, do this. They went and did it. That's true. And I would also say that that piece probably isn't too exceptional in the ancient world. Even where there was sort of armed conflict and organized armed conflict, it was very much seen that God was part of it. Um, I remember back from my days in college and learning military history, the very, very earliest um, account of organized conflict between groups of people is this Kadesh inscription about a battle between the Egyptians and the Hittites, who we also have in the Bible, these peoples. Um, the Egyptians talk about how the battle was going terribly for them, it was going very poorly, and then the god Ra came in and slew the Hittites. So there we have again the impact of um, God upon living history in that sense, and a sense even in our known narratives that God is part of whatever is going on in that way. The, the scary thing about this, I mean, you said it was very dark, is here what you have is you have slaughter and mayhem because God said so. Mm-hmm. It's and going to get darker, so, too. And, and, and this exists today in a lot of terrorism, where people right. go around saying, God said, do X, Y, and Z, and therefore Bob Dylan wrote a song about it called Less, God, God on Our Side. That narrative is in every culture of the world that has an organized culture. Right. Lest we think we have outgrown this in some meaningful yeah. way, 
um, this idea of holy war and visiting that upon other peoples, this is something that we still face in the world today. Yeah, go ahead. Now, there's a, there's a footnote in the Red Book to, uh, to verse 3 that says, but the Lord desires to exact retribution from them, mm-hmm. Midianites, for the sacrilege they committed by seducing the Israelites into worshiping Baal Peor. Right. Now, this is why they like say avenge. Weird, that seems like a weird justification because I could understand God wanting to punish the Midianites if God told the Midianites, don't try to convert the Israelites to your religion. But what's wrong with somebody who has a different religion coming upon a new group of people and saying, hey, you guys should worship the way we worship? And so what, what, what is the sacrilege that they committed? Okay, so one of the things, what is the sacrilege here? What is it that the Midianites did that was so wrong if they were trying to seduce the Israelites into worshiping the Baal, this other false god that we have um, stood up? Violates one of the commandments. Violates one of the commandments. But they didn't violate it. Right. The Israelites violated right. it. But they're so, trying to take God's chosen people away from God. Right, so this would be the internal Israelite narrative that taking the people away. One thing I want to lift up with this whole system is that at the time, one of the things that's that's really revolutionary about yod vav the one God that we have here, is that this God seems to go with the people from Egypt into the land and seems to follow the people and track with them. Um, before this God in the ancient Near East, the real idea is that God and the idea of a God or God's that's very much a landed idea. If you have an area, that area has a god for which that god is responsible. Um, god sort of follows borders. If you have then these border conflicts, these wars, whatever, that must mean, oh, this god that is on the winning side now gets to control more of that territory because that god is more powerful. But that god is very much linked to that place. Um, god and place are very tightly connected, and this is one of the things that yod vav this new God that we have here, um, our God, essentially undoes this idea that that God can be with you outside of place, outside of just a point of sacrifice or temple, that that God can go with you in your journey. Um, that's sort of a revolutionary idea in the sense in the ancient Near East. Um, that's right. We even have the imagery of it, of this cloud and pillar that go with the people, um, this cloud of fire by night and cloud pillar by day that the people are following, that this God can travel and isn't just sort of confined by these boundaries in a way. So, but we have one nation under God. <laughs> the one nation under God. Fast forward a couple thousand years and here we are. Um, that was only in the 1950s. <laughs> it's still around. Yes, very much. And, we'll, and we can discuss, you know, the, uh, American territories and embassies and sovereign territory. Does that one God then follow us? Uh, it opens all kinds of halakhic kinds of spiritual questions, I would suggest. But we can, yeah, we can look at that another time. But I would suggest in response to Richard, your question, what's so wrong with them trying to seduce the Israelites into following this other God? Um, that if they're trying to sneak this god into this territory, by the logic of the ancient Near East, that would be um, a no-no in that sense, beyond the internal logic of the Israelites and them being faithful to yud heh vav this god. That there's, in addition, this other logic of the way that God tracks with territory. Um, just another piece to keep in mind as we look at all of this. Other pieces are, shall we continue? I want to get another volunteer to read this. I mentioned this section is the darkest one. It's going to get even darker. Nine through, through, let's see, about 17. Um, 
the Israelites took the women and children of the Midianites captive and seized as booty all their beasts, all their herds, and all their wealth. And they destroyed by fire all the towns in which they were settled and their encampments. They gathered all the spoil and all the booty, man and beast, and they brought the captives, the booty and the spoil, to Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the whole Israelite community at the camp in the steps of Moab at the Jordan near Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the chieftains of the community came out to meet them outside the camp. Moses became angry with the commanders of the army, the officers of thousands and the officers of hundreds who had come back from the military campaign. Moses said to them, you have spared every female, yet they are the very ones who, at the bidding of Balaam, induced the Israelites to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the Lord's community was struck by the plague. Now, therefore, slay every male among the children and slay also every woman who has known a man carnally. One more verse. But spare every young woman who has not had carnal relations with a man. Okay. As I mentioned, it was going to get uglier, um, this one piece here. Responses here. Thoughts? This is Moses, which is important to hold up, um, that this is Moses ordering this kind of slaying um, of people. This is also the commentators, the medieval commentators and rabbis who talk about this say, well, why would they keep um, the women who had not known the men? The commentators say, well, they're going to basically absorb them into the people of Israel, um, that they are going to marry them off, essentially, and they're going to become Israelites, in a sense. Um, it was, uh, this is one of those sections of Torah that, um, you know, when, when some people go and look at the sacred writings of other peoples, mm-hmm. Like the Quran and say, oh, or right. and say the Quran is really, really violent and yeah. the Torah really isn't. This is one of those things that, you know, if you would read this to most people and say, where do you think this came from? And you give them a choice, many people would say a different sacred tradition than ours. Mm-hmm. So is Moses trying to stop a plague, though, of some sort? I mean, that's his rationale. It's an interesting question whether Moses is stopping something that he sees as a present danger to the people or is executing some kind of vengeance. Um, because the beginning of this campaign seems to be about avenging um, and go and make war upon the Midianites for what they did before. Um, Moses then coming back with this. Um, it's interesting whether or not he's worried that perhaps it's going to happen again, that if these people are left alive, they're going to seduce the Israelites into following the Baalim at some other point. Um, we see this borne out throughout, uh, less so in Torah, but throughout Tanakh, throughout Hebrew Bible, this idea that through connections with other peoples, in particular with um, in re- through relationships with women of other peoples, that the Israelites um, fall off the path and begin worshiping other gods and goddesses. Um, Jezebel being one of the famous, and Ahav later on in Kings being one of the famous um, examples of that. And the prophets, the Israelite prophets, sort of go nuts in response to that in their sort of righteous fury. Um, go ahead. Following Bert's point is... This this is the motif in a pre-rabbinic environment. Yes. <laughs> and it probably exists all the way through until the rabbis themselves reformed the violence, the eye for the eye, you know, mm-hmm. issues. So um, it took a long time before this violence actually came out of our tradition. An excellent point. So rabbinic tradition does a great deal to 
curb some of these impulses within it. Um, I'm going to make the argument, though, that even within Torah, there, seem, there is a seemingly contradictory impulse to curb some of this at points as well. We'll see that. We're actually going to move on to some of that in a minute here. But um, I think you're absolutely right that rabbinic tradition is really what holds back a lot of that. Um, the really famous example that I always think about um, has to do with Amalek, the people of Amalek, who famously attack the Israelites at Rephidim when they are leaving Egypt. They attack them from the rear of the camp so as to attack the elderly, to attack the women and children, to attack those who are not the combatants um, and slaughter them. And so God says, you know, blot out Amalek from under the sun, from anywhere that you should find Amalek. Wipe them all out. Destroy everything that they own. Destroy all of their people, the men, the women, the children, the elderly, everybody. Um, what the rabbis do with that is they look at the conquest of um, Sennacherib from the north, the Babylonians, in the year 722 BCE, and they say, ah, well, Sanchairev came in with his Babylonian forces and his armies and actually scrambled all these different populations and uprooted people and moved them around and such. And they say, so you couldn't ever really know who was Amalek anymore. Therefore, this commandment to wipe out Amalek forever at all times, therefore, it's suspended because we can never really know who's Amalek because the Babylonians move people around. Suspended. Um, if you think about it, that's kind of a bold move, taking a law from the Torah to wipe out Amalek through all time and saying, okay, never mind about that. Um, that law doesn't count anymore, but they do it. Um, that is part of the rabbinic project. What, what social environment took place before the rabbinic movement started to be able to curtail this? Because I can see vested interest emerging here saying, hey, don't tell us what to do. You know, we're answering to this guy. He's saying wipe them out. And you're saying, well, we don't really mean it. How about paying a fine for the red light? So uh, I'll answer there are a lot of ways to look at it. One could say that the rabbis have a more sensible outlook. I mean, the way in which they take capital punishment and make it essentially yeah. impossible to affect, you could look at it as a much more humanitarian impulse. You could also... In general time, The rabbinic innovations? Innovation. The first few centuries CE. Um, is the rabbinic project. So all the way through the destruction of the first temple, through the destruction of the second temple. But you, this didn't really happen until... You have the whole prophetic tradition right. and the prophets who take a very different sense about all this. The whole idea that the sacrifice, right. which is so central to the story, and they say, well, no, it really is. God doesn't really want your sacrifice. God wants you to help the poor. God wants your devotion. And so already at that point, there were strains within Judaism that were say, you know, as you look at the Torah, clearly it contradicts. It's contra and how do you love your neighbor as yourself yeah. and then kill your neighbor? <laughs> and, you know, and, and so it, it's a balance. And the prophetic tradition clearly was more on what we would consider, I think, the moral ethical side. Sure. And I think that, so it was, and, and that's over many centuries. What, what, what was the period? Again. 400 BCE? Even earlier than that, I would suggest. Okay. Um, they are much more ethically inclined. They are much more religiously, ideologically pure. So they then, they're the ones who are taking exception to the events of Jezebel and Ahab as well. So uh, calling them ethical in this, we've 
talk about them in ethical terms. I'm not sure that they would track neatly onto our notions of ethics in this day and age. But one last thing I'll say about the rabbis and that whole innovation away from that militarism, it's also important to know that these were a people that had been absolutely decimated by Rome in a military sense. So for them to say it's no longer among us to exercise military force in the way, there's also a utilitarian piece to that. Um, they didn't have a standing army with which to go wipe out Amalek or wipe out the Midianites or whatnot. They had been absolutely devastated by the Romans. That's a great point, because really, wouldn't you look back and say the start of this was the rise of the Babylonian period where there was no temple anymore. There, we had a shift motif into being a thoughtful sort of let's protect ourselves environment. The idea of proselytization, which we talked about in an earlier mm -hmm. class, really wasn't because we don't believe in it. We were scared to death to do it. <laughs> That's about 500 BCE? 586, 586 is the destruction of yeah. the uh, first temple. First and then 79 and the uh, right. 79 was the second one. Uh, 70, I think. Yeah, it's in that ballpark of the uh, yeah common era, the destruction of Jerusalem. To Babylon and starting the rabbinic survival or revival down there. So a lot of this is in process during that time. I would say that the true rabbinic Judaism and the emergence of it in, in the wake of the destruction of the second temple is really sort of that big transformational moment of picking up the pieces to determine what kind of relationship are we going to have with God that isn't going to be sacrificial, that isn't going to be temple-based, that's going to be based in prayer, in text, in all of these devotional pieces like this. Um, you see the beginnings of it with the exile and with this community that goes over to Persia and says... Even after King Cyrus reconquers the Babylonians and says to the Jews, hey, you can go back and you can build the second temple, a whole bunch of them say, hey, it's not bad here, actually. Maybe let's stick around here in Persia. And this is sort of the beginnings of those communities and their relationship with the diaspora in that sense. So a whole lot of Jewish history there. Um, yeah. What, what forces caused the development of the rabbinic movement? How did that evolve? I can understand the prophets, but the, the rabbinic movement... So they lost the, the temple. They right. had no physical base. They had they, without without going to this new tradition they Precisely. It was a matter of the destruction of the priesthood and a destruction of um, the temple and, and sacrifice as the way through which one had a relationship with God. Suddenly we had to figure out a new way of having a relationship with God if we couldn't do it at the temple and if it wasn't mediated by the priesthood. Um, what emerged in that vacuum was rabbinic Judaism, was this idea that we would substitute the three sacrifices of the day with the three prayer times of the day. Shafari emerged? Were they just the most learned men in, in the communities? They were essentially an elite that was not centralized out of the temple. They came out of the group that was called the Pharisees um, in and around that era of Judaism. You have the Pharisees who were a little bit more decentralized, the Sadducees who were much more closely linked to the temple and the priesthood and were, for better or worse, more corrupt. There were the Essenes that wandered out to the desert to live a life of total purity. Nobody knows what happened to them, but we do have their scrolls today in the Dead Sea Scrolls. We discovered all of their writings at Qumran, um, even though they themselves disappeared in the sands of time. Um, we also have the Sikari, the group that are commonly called the Zealots. Um, they were the ones that fought their way out of Jerusalem to Masada and made their stand there. And, well, they didn't really survive the whole thing either. Um, and then we also have early Christians who still were involved in theological debates with early Jews about 
um, what all of this looked like. And we have evidence of debates in early synagogues between Jews and Christians sort of using the same internal logic um, because those groups were still similar enough to be on that same page debating the same texts and the same pieces um, at that time. So that this was sort of all this variegated um, landscape that was Second Temple era Judaism, um, including Christianity in that as well, probably up until about the, count, the Council of Nicaea or so in 385. Thank you. Um, we still have the Kohenim. We do, as a vestigial sort of piece, this idea that um, in some traditional communities, you would call for the first Aliyah mm-hmm. in a service a Kohen. The mm-hmm. second Aliyah would be a Levite. My mom is a Levite mm-hmm. for what that's worth. Um, and the fact that we even have three prayer times, Shacharit, Mincha, Ma'ariv, that is uh, a vestige of the sacrificial system. There were these three sacrifices at those same three times of day. And so uh, the way in which that imprints on our system of prayer uh, we have all of these little linkages and all of these pieces that still connect us to temple roots, Judaism, roots to the priesthood, to all of that, even though um, you know ours is a radically different mm-hmm. relationship with God today. Would you want to carry this further and say possibly that the development of rabbinic Judaism was a very smart response to now being people of the diaspora and having to live as a minority in a majority environment. Just again, we have no armies now. All we have is our book and our belief. We can't go out and kill people just because they try to kill us. I'll go so far as to say, well, I have professors who used to teach this in rabbinical school would make the argument that Judaism didn't even really exist until you have the rabbinic yeah, movement. That what we have before that is really ancient Israelite devotional holy. It's holy. It is a relationship with God. We call it our same God. We see these as our holy ancestors in their sacred stories. And there are those who would make the argument that Judaism, as we'd call it, um, is a function of that rabbinic project. So... Depending on how far you want to take it. Um, so we spend 52 weeks studying this, and that's not who we are. <laughs> I would say it's not the sum total of who we are. Um, and that the people in these stories, if they were to look at who we are today, yeah. they would be dumbfounded yes. by what by rabbinic Judaism and what a strange set of innovations yeah. those are. And yet it is what it is. I think that yeah. this is very much, we also see the Reconstructionist project um, superimposed over that as well. We can see these different eras of Jewish uh, civilization and Jewish peoplehood and these radical changes and transformations and evolutions of it. Um, that ours is the long, the next in a long line of them, but we still see ourselves as part of this lineage. Um, I would suggest as a Reconstructionist way of looking at it as well. Um, um, Richard, I saw your hand up from a while back. Well, I just wanted to bring it back to Moses first. Please. <laughs> if people will forgive me. <laughs> I'll uh, forgive you. The, um, we were talking about you know, why was Moses so harsh in, the, in calling for the killing of the Midianite women. And there was a, a note in the Red Book that, that gives a, a, a possible... Uh, uh, political reason in the sense of, of his view of himself as a leader in that his his wife was a Midianite mm-hmm. and he perhaps wanted to avoid the appearance of favoring, giving favor to the Midianites <laughs> uh, 
uh, and then Great reading. and then being and then being accused of oh you're going soft on Midianites because of course your wife's a Midianite. So great reading. Could Moses yeah. have been uh, overly severe she due to so. the yeah. fact that yeah he was in fact married to a Midianite woman and didn't want to you know wanted to avoid the appearance of favoritism or anything? Did he feel like he needed to be even more severe than all of these commanders of the Israelite forces? Wow, that's I a cool reading. For me. I wonder what she thought about. <laughs> I would love to read that midrash as well. But how often, but how often, but how often do we encounter? Mm-hmm. Or we could just say this is totally distasteful to us, right? And a part of the Torah that does not speak to us right. today, right? I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of things in the Torah that don't speak to us today, right? I mean, we don't kill people who carry wood on the right. Sabbath, and we don't no, no, sure we kill. But we still have, but we still have parents who who discipline their children more harshly than no, we need I, to. And right. I mean, we have people who discipline their charges more more than they need to, and so on. So you know, and it's a lot of it is to maintain a facade of strength. Well, that say, yeah, go ahead. I would say that when our, our sons and daughters get married and you want it to be an open, tolerant society, I bet every parent brings a little mini secret side relief if that person happens to have a Jewish wedding. It's like it's, it's imprinted. Sure. So the ways in which we think about being part or others who are part of our lives and our communities and our families who are not Jewish and what... Um, ambivalences or what anxieties we hold even in the midst of um, truly striving to be an inclusive and accepting community. Um, I do want to say that that reading that you bring to us, Richard, uh, that that's exactly the Midrashic project um, to look at all of these and to ask these questions and say, I wonder how that conversation went. Um, That is the invitation to Midrash in that sense, and that's a great uh, midrush that you brought there. Um, well, I, I did say it came from the Red Book. Well, thank you for bringing it in. <laughs> thank you for bringing it into the into our conversation as well. Yeah. From the Green Book. <laughs> the women. I just the women's point of view. I wanted to share that um, um, uh, described in S uh, about the revenge against the Midianites that Numbers twenty five described in episode. Um, in which the Israelite men were prostituting themselves with the Moabite women. Such an allegation seems to involve sexual acts in combination with foreign worship, not merely sex outside the boundaries of marriage. And it's just so interesting to me that the Midianite women are the ones that are guilty, not the Israelite men who are doing it. It's almost like an honor killing. It's, yeah. And I feel like it's, I just feel like it's important to lift that up as, as Rabbi Nick says, as an example of, you know, ancient times and really the women are targeted. The ways in which... nasty women that are just seducing us into doing things. It makes me think about the uh, contemporary conversation about mechitza, about the separation of men and women in prayer, and this idea that, oh, women might distract us from our piety and our perfect kavanot and intentionality, therefore we'll stick them upstairs, or we'll stick them behind the lattice or the screen or what have you, out of sight and out of mind, because they might distract us. Um, <laughs> I'll put it like this, it's nowhere near as dire as this passage and what we're seeing here, but that same impulse that, oh, um, the men committed some kind of sexual iniquity, therefore let's go slaughter the women in that sense. Um, Yeah, it's a really horrendous thing, and I think it's worth 
looking at where even echoes of that same impulse reverberate in our own times, both someone mentioned honor killings um, in other societies, but I think even within our own um, far more traditional elements, this idea that we'll put women up on the balcony or behind the screen, behind the barrier, because uh, they might distract us from our concentration. Um, I think it's worth being vigilant about those uh, elements as well. Go ahead. Especially at a time when we have a woman right Yeah. I think it's important to mm -hmm. see the seeds of sexism in these ancient mm -hmm. I find some similarities between what we're talking about and also the rape culture mm -hmm. um, here in America and especially the college campuses mm -hmm. and like how like I address could affect a male's actions towards me and mm -hmm. then like I still get in trouble for mm -hmm. it and then if they do get in trouble it's not like a lot or they don't get in trouble at all mm -hmm. and like so today, in 2016, we're still carrying this. Like mm -hmm. we haven't totally let go and overcome it. And we are absolutely struggling with, um, I think, what you aptly point out with this rape culture, with um, all of the ways in which that resonates across the experience of young people on college campuses. All of that, um, and the way in which women are blamed mm -hmm. for actions that are not even their own. Um, this, I suppose, represents a uh, singularly horrific. Um, aspect of that or element of that and almost taken to its most extreme conclusion, but you're absolutely right to point out that this is something that continues to reverberate in our society, something that we struggle with to this day. I appreciate your bringing that element of what it is we wrestle with too, um, because it's absolutely part of our contemporary story and it's worth holding in contrast to this, to our sacred texts in that way. I'm thinking, this is so different. This is so, we're so far beyond that. We're really not. We are and we're not. It's true. We are and we're not. We are, uh, we like to think we are, but at our, uh, our lizard brain level, mm -hmm. we're not. So I want to keep us moving forward. I think you're absolutely right that, you know, we think about ourselves as having developed and progressed and evolved, and this is the same story as Proverbs says, uh, there's nothing new under the sun in that way. The strength of the Torah, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. is the fact that this, the people in the desert and the people who were so different from mm -hmm. us had stories that are so relevant. Right. I want to... Just one second. Okay, Bert, go ahead. How, I hear and I understand what everybody's saying, but someone can come and look at this and say, how in the world can you possibly study this book, worship this God, if this is what the God does. Because you look at it as metaphor. No, I, can I ask... Well, I don't know what metaphor makes this okay. Can I ask that we hold that question? Okay. for Because that's actually where I want to go with okay. the end of this, is that exact question of what, how it is that we hold this. And how do we answer that? Yes, and how we answer it. That's exactly what I want to go to um, toward the end of this. I want to look at two more short passages before we get there, though. Um, so with your permission, I'd love another volunteer. We're going to jump to that second Parsha I mentioned. We have a double Parsha. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. I don't want to lose it. Um, we're going to go to chapter 35, verse 9. If somebody wants to read uh, verses 9 through 15. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. The Lord spoke to Moses. Speak to the Israelite people and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, <clears throat> You shall provide yourselves with places to serve you as cities of refuge to which a manslayer who has killed a person unintentionally may flee. The cities shall serve you as a refuge from the avenger so that the manslayer may not die unless he has stood trial before the assembly. The towns that you thus assign shall be six cities of refuge in all. 
Three cities shall be designated beyond the Jordan, and the other three shall be designated in the land of Canaan. They shall serve as cities of refuge. These six cities shall serve the Israelites and the resident aliens among them for refuge, so that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Perfect. Um, so let me just paraphrase very quickly. I don't want to get into all the laws about refuge cities right now. But the idea here is that you could kill someone accidentally, um, accidental death, uh, manslaughter, that kind of homicide that's unintentional. Now, this gets tricky because even if you killed them accidentally, it wouldn't be murder. So you wouldn't be uh, held culpable in the same way. Yet... We're looking at this uh, very ancient society in which we don't understand the reality of it is that the family members of those who were of the person who was killed would have a right then to come and kill you and pursue you, even if it was an accident. So the Torah here is looking at this piece and saying we have to have some way to settle this whole thing down, that even if um, they have the ability to go and kill you, even if they're not then culpable for murder, um, there's a sense that it's not totally just what's happening. So they say that you know you can't just go and kill somebody like that without standing trial. It's again about setting up courts rather than having this whole system of vengeance, um, of revenge back and forth. And not only do those courts serve and those cities of refuge serve for Israelites, looking in verse 15, this is pretty remarkable to me, they serve for Israelites and it says people, resident alien. It's, these are for people who aren't Israelites, who aren't part of the people. That's for everybody. Um, it's not that suddenly there are two different rules for the Israelites and different other people, that this idea of justice and these courts and protections of people against a case of accident like that, they serve for everyone, which the Torah doesn't always do. There are places in the Torah in which it says, here are the laws for Israelites and then here are the laws for other people. But here, creating this sense of justice out of accidental death, um, this becomes the law of the land in a sense. Yeah, go ahead. And the last line that he uh, that uh, he read from the Red Book, it said that any one, I think it was read this way, any one who slays a person unintentionally may flee there. In the Green Book, it says any man who slays a person unintentionally shall flee there. Um, so what is the... Uh, what is the feeling about that? <laughs> so, so it seems interesting to me because that's the more conservative yeah. um, book, the, the yeah, red book. Mm -hmm. It seems as though it should be the opposite. Hmm? Yeah, it seems it should be the opposite. Yeah. Right. It's at the, the last 15, the one you just read from, but at the, at the last one. Is it Nefesh, every sole person? So the Nefesh there is the one who is killed. Oh, okay. Makah, Nefesh, Bishgaga is uh, accidentally. Um, from the Libnei Yisrael, the children of Israel, um, will be will receive this as well as those who are um, the Ger Latoshav, the one who dwells there in their midst. Um, what does the Hebrew say? I'm looking right now. Um, the one who flees, essentially. Um, you could. The Green Book may be an overstretch. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think. I'll put it like this Hebrew is gendered almost unavoidably, um, it is a gendered language. 
everyday, you know, inanimate objects even have gender, um, regardless of any kind of association with male or female, and yet I believe that what the text is trying to say is anyone. Um, I think this is trying to cover anyone who is involved in accidental death in that sense. So um, maybe the most faithful translation to the Hebrew would be to say any man, but I think that anyone is probably a more um, accurate translation of what they're trying to get at with this, if that makes sense. Um, this is the word gare, which in a previous discussion we talked about how it means the other. Well, that's the stranger. Yeah. Gare Toshav is the one who dwells, the other, the alien, right. whatever, alien. who, yeah. Toshav, the one who dwells essentially in your midst in that sense. It, um, in the Green Book, there's two notes about it earlier. Yeah. Passages, I think it's the same word you're saying, at 6 and at 11, that was it Nefesh or Gare that appears? There it's Nefesh at 11, which is a gender neutral term. The blood avenger is expected to protect the clan's women as well as its men. Mm-hmm. So maybe. There's there. also a note here it says the present translation presumes the case of a female killer would be more complicated than the case that the Torah outlines. So that's a possibility. That's also got some rabbinic overlay to it about um, what happens with a female killer, etc. I mean, and it's difficult to read Torah completely in a vacuum without any rabbinic overlay, but it's the case. Um, yeah, it's a neutral term. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm content to say it's intended to say anyone who kills someone else unintentionally um, has this refuge. So we've got this very interesting piece trying to create a measure of justice against this cycle of revenge, pushing back against a culture of vengeance, um, having courts and rule of law and justice instead, and it applies to anyone. I want to look at one last piece, and then we're going to jump to Bert's question. This is quite different from going and kill everybody. This is very different than what we just saw in that Midianite um, campaign. The last passage I want to look at very quickly... Um, let me see. We're going to go to the end. Chapter 36 now. Will somebody read verses 1 through 9? The family heads in the clan of the descendants of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, one of the Josephite clans, came forward and appealed to Moses and the chieftains, family heads of the Israelites. They said, Adonai commanded my Lord to assign the land to the Israelites as shares by lot. And my Lord was further commanded by Adonai to assign the share of our kinsman, Zelophehad, to his daughters. Now, if they marry persons from another Israelite tribe, their share will be cut off from our ancestral portion and be added to the portion of the tribe into which they marry. Thus, our allotted portion will be diminished. And even when the Israelites observe the Jubilee, their share will be added to that of the tribe into which they marry and their share will be cut off from the ancestral portion of our tribe. So Moses, at Adonai's bidding, instructed the Israelites, saying, The plea of the Josephite tribe is just. This is what Adonai has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. They may marry anyone they wish, provided they marry into a clan of their father's tribe. No inheritance of the Israelites may pass over from one tribe to another, But the Israelite heirs, each of them, must remain bound to the ancestral portion of their tribe. Every daughter among the Israelite tribes who inherits a share must marry someone from a clan of her father's tribe 
in order that every Israelite heir may keep an ancestral share. Thus, no inheritance shall pass over from one tribe to another, but the Israelite tribes shall remain bound each to its portion. So to give a quick um, overview of what we just got there, earlier we have the daughters of Tzlovchad, these daughters of this guy who dies, he doesn't have any male uh, descendants, and so there's this problem of who inherits the stuff, because the males are supposed to inherit the stuff. The daughters come forward and say, we should be able to inherit um, his holdings, and ultimately they are granted that request. So here we have a reprise of that story, all of these ancestral heads coming forward and saying, well, if they marry guys from elsewhere, um, then their lands might jump over into other tribes' lands, so therefore we should overturn the daughters being able to inherit. And what we have here is that that ruling is upheld, the original one. It says, fine, so they can still marry anyone they want, we'll just keep it within the clan, but they still get to inherit. So the inheritance of the women is upheld against the complaints of all of these other ancestral heads. Also, isn't it... What's that? It cannot intermarry with other tribes. With other tribes. But the, the other thing that pounced out at me, they may marry anyone they wish. Yes. Which means that the, I assume that the woman... As long as they're within a claim no, no, no. within the tribe. Understood. And the purpose of that being, since God is, about the allocate, God, God is allocating land to the tribes. Mm-hmm. And the idea is if the tribes intermarry, then the land all gets messed up. And that's a, Unless that's you the, could stay with that. I mean, no, forget obviously about, we're working within this story's rules. Right. I'm just saying... I disagree that this is so, yeah, it's different, Mm -hmm. but it's not so different. Yeah, they get it as long as their husbands are the right clan, which means it really goes to their husbands in a way. Because if it didn't go, if they wanted to marry whoever they wanted, then they lost it. So it didn't have to do just with them. You can look at this in an interesting way to ask the question, hey, with this device, we now know for sure forever who is a Jew. Because we look at the mother and we know that she can only marry an Israelite. So, that's a bigger question than I want to tackle right now in the last few minutes. It's a great question. Five. (laughs) But wouldn't that be true, though? If you think about it, it, it's just the mother. She could not marry a Midianite and pass the land on. So, if you say to a child, is a child a Jew? Must be because the mother could only marry. She she also couldn't marry another Jewish tribe. Yeah. Right. This is talking about other tribes. It's talking about Jewish. For sure, we know that she's married a Jew. So one thing I want to uplift right now, I, Laura, you're absolutely right to hold this piece. Like, how progressive is this really? If they can't really even marry other tribes, um, it is and it isn't. I would say. It's a step. Part of what I want to hold in this moment is that it's not totally clear what the relationships between the different tribes are going to be. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is a little bit like um, pre-Civil War the United States. How much power is going to be invested in the federal government versus the states? Um, So there's some jockeying between tribes. We even are going to see in Hebrew Bible um, open warfare between the tribes. It's not going to necessarily be pretty or nice, and I don't. I think it would it would say too much to say that they already have a sense of this overall 
Kol, Kalal Yisrael, the whole Jewish people all together, that that's still sort of in play at this moment. Um, hence the upset about, well, what if the land goes to other people? Um, I get the upset. I'm just pointing yeah. out that within the structure, it still relates to who, who, the, who the guy is. That's right. Um, And that's not going to be totally overturned here. Um, I think you are absolutely right to hold that 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 we hold that tension, that lack of um, balance of egalitarian quality within our ancient Israelite texts. Um, We have to hold that as a tension. Um, I am. I'll put it like this. It's worthwhile to me that. At this complaint, Moses didn't then override any override or overturn any inheritance for women, um, particularly given that the Israelite people all went to him and said, oh, this is going to break down the entire system um, between the different tribes. In a moment of real tension, the easy thing, I think, would have been to say, okay, you know what, never mind. We'll just, uh, we'll just toss the land back into some pool of those people. Um, the fact that he said, no, they can still keep it. We'll keep, he said, they should still marry within their tribal area. I mean, that in and of itself could have been just as much to try and keep the peace at a time when they could have easily had an armed conflict between the tribes. Um, but even this piece that Bert mentions about they can even marry anyone they want um, within their tribe, within their state, as it were, um, even that's sort of remarkable in a time at which... Um, even today, there are cultures where a woman no can't marry someone her parents don't want her to but marry. she doesn't have a parent left, so there really is nobody left for them anybody. to say who, who they who who else is gonna tell them who they could marry. This is a special circumstance. They're orphans. There's no father to say you pick this is who you marry. So with creating this whole system of courts, it would not be I'll put it like this, I would believe it if they said that okay, and the women then become if they're talking about them as property within a lot of this marriage stuff, it wouldn't surprise me then if they reverted to some court that they're setting up in this way. We just saw it with the cities of refuge to give them even the peace. I'll put it like this. It's not, it's not satisfying. It doesn't feel good necessarily, particularly within our construct and our ideas of what is egalitarian. Um, but it's a step, yeah. I think. Do we have any idea of the size of the particular tribes, the numbers? <laughs> so the numbers, I'll put it like this. We have numbers that are historical, numbers that are in the text. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're probably dealing in, realistically, in the tens of thousands. The text would love to talk about the 600,000 Jews that left is a traditional answer. Well, tribes, that's 50,000 each. Right. So. But that, that's the historical that's the story. That's the story that we have. And do we have any other evidence? As to the <laughs> We're not sure that there were ever Jews in Egypt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the numbers get <laughs> tricky. Um, the numbers get very tricky, um, which is why I'm sort of evasive about giving a straight answer about it. Uh, I appreciate yeah. not giving a straight answer about it. So the reason the. The reason I wanted to save your question to the end and also return to this point that I made that I actually think we have all of Torah in some ways. This is sort of a microcosm of it. We see both some of the extremes of suffering, of darkness. We see the worst of human impulses. We also see attempts at justice, some of them better than others. Um, We see striving toward that. We see story. We see real mistreatment of the other and certain kinds of particularism and favoring of the Israelite people. And we also see attempts to weigh out 
uh, justice for everybody who is part of this story. Um, we see these in ways that are contradictory, uh, and yet the whole thing is all there before us. This is why it was sort of striking to me as I was preparing this, looking at all the different pieces and trying to figure out, well, is there one piece I was going to talk about here? And then looking at the bigger picture, it just sort of seemed to me that these two partiote in some ways capture the full span of it. Um, and this is part, and to return to Bert's question, why look at all of this really ugly stuff? Um, this is a piece of why, or at least how I hold Torah and Tanakh, Hebrew Bible, as being a living, breathing document that isn't just this thing that God wrote on high, that um, was written by human beings on some level and reflected their humanity and reflected um, even in the midst of it, both of their highest aspirations and their darkest impulses. Um, the fact that all of that is included in this text and all of it is held as being, well, part of the human story and sacred on that level, um, that's exactly, exactly. This is a piece of why I actually thought this was a very cool pair of partiote to wind up with for this sense. Even if we can't take all of it all at the same time, in some ways we get a taste of the entire project of Torah. We get what is beautiful and what we aspire to. We get what uh, we find repulsive and what revolts us uh, in that same sense. And we get it all together in sacred text in this living, breathing thing that as we talked about, wow, we'd like to see ourselves as having come a long way from it. Sometimes we have. A lot of times we haven't. A lot of times the, the struggles that we find here are the struggles that still reverberate and resonate in our time today. I see three hands, and then we'll wrap up. Richard, go ahead. Well, I think that uh, one of the, re the reason that uh, Torah resonates for so many of us in terms of its the universality of its application mm -hmm. is for a lot of people the, the same reason that we continue to read and attend Greek tragedies that were written 2,500 years ago, where the tragedians dealt with issues of, of hubris and, and uh, you know, doing the will of the gods and all the bad consequences of, you know, things, things that can go wrong. That's and true. And, and, you know, it's the same, re you know, they'll still be performing Shakespeare a thousand years from now because, because he, he deals with these universal issues. I would say all of that, and this is ours. And this is ours. This is ours. This belongs to us, and we also have 2,000 years of our people wrestling with these questions, wrestling with what it means to have these commandments and these pieces that um, perhaps we can't even uphold, perhaps we don't even believe in. How do we uphold and have a relationship with it when we want to fight with it, when we want to argue with it? This is this whole idea in rabbinic text of machloket l'shem shemaim, to have an argument with all of this material. It's not just permissible, it's virtuous. It's how you have a relationship with it is to argue with it. The good and the bad, all of it wraps together and that's our heritage in a sense. Go ahead. I think is, it be, is your answer then to Bird? it's not a question of how can we believe in God after reading this. The answer is you believe in God because you do or you don't. You believe in our story. That's what this is. It, it, it is your story, your narrative, written about everything that humankind has done. And that's where you draw your lessons. But spirituality really is on the side. You, you can't or cannot believe in that. I don't think the message is there necessarily. In a sentence, I would say that 
the Torah and the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, are the story of my people's relationship with God. Yeah. Sometimes it works well. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. Um, but it is the story of that relationship, a sacred relationship, I would say. Sometimes it reaches and connects to our highest aspirations. Other times it reflects our darkest impulses because it's who we are in that sense. It's reflective of us so in that way. God out of this in that sense relieves your issue of whether I'm a believer or I'm not a believer. I can't totally lift God out of it because it's the story of our relationship with God in that no, sense. But, I'm but saying, if you don't believe in God per se, it doesn't mean you can't resonate to all of the material right. here about our people, our history, our nor would convictions, I, our values. You know. Nor would I say that the darkest pieces that we find in Tanakh um, impel me not to believe in God. Yeah. I would say that that's fair. Absolutely. Um, Linda, go ahead. Just that good and evil exists in the world. Right. And I think that reading the evil parts mm-hmm. helps us to be introspective in a way that's serious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like this fluffy, like everything's wonderful and beautiful and this is what you should aspire to. It's also looking at human failing and, mm-hmm. and the seeds of human failing. And I think that that's what helps us to be decent and moral as Jews. It's yeah. Understanding yeah. all of that, and in the see- in seeking to be decent and moral, to me that is God. Absolutely. And so, not a person sitting in the clouds, but the effort to. It's the same thing you're saying. I'm just not saying it as well. No, I very much appreciate um, you are you're bringing that for us. That it is a living, breathing thing. That that is what engaging with Torah is. Um, that it is all of this all together. It's the darkness and it's the suffering contrasted with justice and caring. It's our highest aspirations. It's our lowest impulses. Um, but it's why this this set of sacred texts um, is alive and why it's living and why it's breathing and why we carry it with us into all of our stories. One last uh, yeah, comment. Go ahead. Same problem with our Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave the Constitution for another class, but... Um, but I'll let other scholars uh, address Constitution, but I will make the claim that Torah is a living and breathing document, and it's how um, we carry ourselves with it today that's part of the story. Will somebody read for me verse 13? We have to finish the book, of course. These are the commandments and regulations that the Lord enjoyed upon the Israelites through Moses on the steps of Moab at the Jordan near Jericho. From strength to strength, and so we may, may we be strengthened through our love, our engagement, our connection with Torah, our engagement, our connection with one another, with sacred community. Thus, we conclude the book of Numbers. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom.